This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Good morning to you all. Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer now so that uh, we ask God to help us to understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you will help us to understand this difficult passage as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many years ago, I remember, and I still see this person on my mind, a very young, fervent Christian man, and he was very enthusiastic about God, very enthusiastic about the Bible. He was at every Bible study, he came to church every Sunday, every seminar, there he was. But one day, he stopped coming to church, and I went to find out why. And he said the reason was because he thought God was love, but then he had also learned that God was a judge, and he felt that he couldn't accept God as a judge. So he stopped coming to church, and he stopped believing God. Now, I wonder whether for us, we ever have the same problem in believing in a judging God. And how much more if it is not just at a theoretical level, but at a reality level. Imagine if God judged you in your life today. Imagine if God, in a very real way, made the circumstances of your life such that life became really difficult for you, And instead of lifting you up, he brought you down. Would you still believe in God? Could you still have faith in him? Now today we're looking at chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. And the events uh, today in this chapter are very closely linked with what happened last week when we looked at chapter 15. David is now running away from his eldest son, Absalom. After four years of meticulous planning, Absalom had successfully taken the throne away from King David. He'd entered the capital and taken his crown. And now we read that David was on the run. He was running for his life together with a handful of faithful soldiers, officials, and their families. So this man who was once blessed by God and raised up was now brought down. And the first person he meets beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives is Ziba. And this person, Ziba, is from the past. right? We remember reading about Ziba in chapter 9. Ziba was the servant of David's predecessor, King Saul. And Ziba was instructed by David to look after the last remaining grandson of King Saul, which was Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth needed to be looked after because, again, we've been coming a long way through uh, the book of Samuel. Mephibosheth had been dropped as a child and he he lost the use of his legs. He was paralyzed. So he couldn't look after himself. So King David has said to Ziba, look after Mephibosheth, look after his estates, bring in his crops, make sure he is well looked after. Now, if you turn it back to me to chapter 9, okay, um, today we're going to do things a bit differently because, you know, usually I flash up all the slides, right? But I thought, okay, since we are still in 2 Samuel, it's nice for us to go back and forth and make sure that we're still within the story. So rather than spoon feed you, I'm going to make you look through some of the passages in 2 Samuel to make sure you're engaged. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9 to 13, this was the exact charge that was given to Ziba. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops. 
so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So that is the background to Ziba. And as we come to today's passage, we see that the first person that David meets as he's running away from this, uh, the city, going down the hill on the Mount Olives on the other side, is Ziba. And with Ziba are substantial provisions and gifts. He's brought 200 loaves of bread, 100 raisin cakes, 100 fig cakes, and even brought wine. Now, this is something that obviously had taken Ziba a lot of time to prepare. I mean, he just didn't go to the 7-Eleven or the NTUC Fair Price to pick it up, right? I mean, he actually had some forethought to think about this. And you'd expect David to be overjoyed and thankful and maybe give Ziba a big hug or a warm handshake. Think, you know, great to see you again, Ziba. But how does David react to Ziba? Well, in verse 16, sorry, in verse 2 of chapter 2, he reacts in quite a strange way, right? He says to him in verse 2, chapter 16, The king asked Ziba, Why have you brought these? Now, we can't mistake, but there's a different tone here in the way that David is now addressing Ziba than when he did when he addressed Hushai, his friend, or even Abiathar and Zadok the priest. Because here there's a bit of suspicion in his voice. He's standoffish. He's keeping his distance because it seems like David doesn't really trust Ziba. He doesn't trust his motives or his motivations. And Ziba's answer seems to also give us reason to understand why David is so suspicious. Because Ziba answers the king and he says, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Now this Ziba, as you will see, is quite good at Tai Chi, right? Because he's not really answering the question. David is asking, why are you here? What is the motivation for you being here? And basically, Ziba's answer is a non-answer. He's just saying, this food is for you. Now obviously this food is for David and his men, right? I mean, he didn't bring it for himself. But why? Why does he bring this food? What is the motivation we know that with Ittai the Gittite, we saw last week, he's still with David because he recognizes that the Lord God has anointed David to be king. We know with Hushai, his motivation is because he's David's friend. But why? Why is Ziba here? We don't know. So in verse 3, David, again, doesn't seem very satisfied with Ziba's answer. And he says, where is your master's grandson? And basically he's saying, what happened to the responsibility that I gave you? What happened to the charge I gave you? What happened to Mophibosheth, the paralyzed boy? Maybe in another way he's asking the question, where did you get all this stuff from? Is it your stuff or is it Mophibosheth's stuff? Well, again, we already said that Ziva is very good at Tai Chi, right? He doesn't really answer the question directly. And he says, he is staying in Jerusalem. Because, he thinks, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. So here the penny drops. Here we see the real motivation of why Ziba is here. 
He's here in a way to discredit Mufibushesh. So you know today we read the newspaper and we're supposed to living in a post-truth era. So you know we live in a time where there's lots of fake news. So this is in a sense fake news, right? It's really sensational. But actually when you look at it, it's a bit unbelievable because can it really be that Mufibushesh is back in Jerusalem waiting to receive the kingdom of his grandfather? It's not really possible, right? Because as we've been following through the book of 2 Samuel, we see that this is just not possible because A, in chapter 9, even Mofibosheth describes himself as a dead dog. Because he's paralyzed, and in the eyes of society in those days, he's not fit to be king, right? He doesn't have the image of a king. I mean, we saw last week, you know, what does Absalom look like? He's looking like Brad Pitt, right? His hair is very long and good looking. You know, he looks the part of the king, but not Mofibosheth. And also, Absalom is of the line of David, and Mofibosheth is on the line of Saul. Why would Absalom, David's son, take power to then put somebody else's line to be king over him? Does it make sense? And again, the last point is, why is David running? David is running because Absalom has already declared himself to be king. So why would Mofibosheth stay in Jerusalem to wait to be declared king? Doesn't make sense. But then what comes next is even more shocking because in verse 4, the king, David, said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mofibosheth is now yours. Now this is really weird, right? Because we already saw that David doesn't really trust Ziba, he's suspicious of Ziba. We see that the story that Ziba gives of Mofibosheth doesn't make sense, but yet David gives Ziba what he's looking for. All of his charges, property, all of Saul's property which he once gave to Mofibosheth. Now, why is happening? What is this? Why, how do we understand what we are reading here? Has David somehow lost his marbles? You know, maybe, you know, he's very tired. Maybe he's desperate. Nobody knows. Some people say maybe David's just being practical. Because, you know, he's on the run. Army's going to be chasing after him. He doesn't have time to judge who said what, who did what. Well, in a sense, maybe that's right. Maybe he's desperate for help. He's just accepting the food and saying, okay, I give you Mofibosheth's possessions in exchange. But why is this recorded here for us? I think it is recorded for us because it's part of the theme of showing us how far David has fallen. That here, Ziba, who once obeyed unquestionably what David said, is now taking advantage of David himself. That David has fallen so far that even Ziba, the servant of his predecessor, Saul, comes and takes advantage of David. And as he leaves David, the words that he says, I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. Sounds really hollow, right? It doesn't really sound as if Ziba really believes that David is his lord or his king. Because we now know, as we've been looking through the whole book, that Absalom is now the king. So I think this is just part of the process of which we are seeing that one after another, 
people are taking advantage of David and are forsaking him. But there's worse to come because the next person that David meets is this guy called Shimei or Shimei. And uh, this guy Shimei again comes from uh, the the line of Saul, the family of Saul. And David is now passing through a place called Baru Bahurim, which is one and a half miles northeast of Jerusalem. So David is con- continuing his journey, running away from Jerusalem, and he's going through the city, and he comes across Shimei. And Shimei is not a happy man. He's got a chip on his shoulder. He's got a bone to pick with David, and he's very unhappy with David. And let's look at what he says. He says in verse 6, He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Now, if if Ziba was uh, making up fake news, then it seems that uh, Shimei here is believing fake news. Because he's actually accusing David of things that he hasn't done. We know that David was guilty of murder. He murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But he never murdered Saul. He never murdered Jonathan, Saul's son, and he never murdered the household of Saul. In fact, Jonathan was David's best friend. And he mourned the death of Saul. And he went out of his way to protect Mephibosheth. Now, if I were David, and I'm sure if you were in the same shoes, you're having a bad day, right? You lost the capital. Ten of your concubines are still back in the palace. You're on the run. It's hot, sticky, right? And this idiot is throwing stones and dust at you. You've got your army with you and he's accusing you of things you haven't done. What would you do? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I might send someone up there to tell him to, sh- to shut up, right? Well, that's exactly how uh, his men feel. I mean, his men say to David, Hey, let me just go up there and separate his head from his body for you. Now, if I was David, I might be tempted to say, yeah, why not? Right now, I've got my army with me. He's just one guy there giving me grief. I don't need this trouble. But look at how David answers because the answer of David is quite remarkable in the circumstances. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, right? So the, the military commander. If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Now, for many commentators, they feel that these two verses form the heart of the whole chapter, which explains what's happening. David is basically saying that he's willing to put up with Shemai and his cursing because God is actually cursing him. And those curses are coming through Shemai. He's actually saying, 
that though Shimei may be cursing him for the wrong reasons, God is actually playing a part in his cursing. Because he is a murderer, he is guilty of sin. And deep in his heart, David knows that all this is happening because God said it would happen. See, remember, if you turn back with me to uh, chapter 12, verse 9 to 13, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, the prophet Nathan had been sent to David. And this was what God said to David through the prophet Nathan. Chapter 12, verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And this is what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your own very eyes, I will take your wives and will give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, what you did with Bathsheba. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, David remembered what the prophet Nathan said. And he recognizes that actually... God is doing all these things to him. Absalom, Ahitopol, the advisor, Ziba, Shimai. All these things are actually sent by God because God is fulfilling his promise to judge him. But the amazing thing is God, even though he's bringing all this judgment pouring down on David, David is still able to have faith in God. Because His response to the cursing is not to get angry with God, but look at what he said. He said in verse 12 of chapter 16, It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Now, when we read it in the English, in verse 12, we don't get the full impact of what he's really saying. Because the word here, misery, or in some other translations, suffering, right, actually has the idea of suffering and misery because of sin. David doesn't recognize that he's suffering meaninglessly or he's suffering because it just happens, right? You know, he stepped in a pothole. He recognizes that his misery is because of iniquity and sin on his part. So basically what he's saying in verse 12 is that it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery because of iniquity and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. You see, this is so important for us to see because it is possible for us to have faith even in God who judges. David is able to have faith in a God who judges because he recognizes that God will act towards him in grace in the very end. See, back in chapter 12, God said that he forgave David of his sin. Even though the sword will come into his family, even though one will close to him will commit public adultery, God still said, if you remember, I forgive you. And David holds God to his promises because he knows that he is under judgment now, but in the end, he will be raised up again under grace and forgiveness. So here the scene ends very pitifully. 
Shimei continues to curse him, showering him and his soldiers with stones and dirt. But the worst is to come because as we come to the last part of this chapter, we see that something even more offensive is going to happen to David and to uh, his relationship with Absalom. As we come to the very end, Absalom in verse 20 asks Ahitopo, the wise counselor who once worked for David. He says, give us your advice. What should we do? Ahitopo answered, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father in the hands of everyone. With you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubine in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice of Ahitopo that Ahitopo gave was like the one who inquires of God. And that was how David and Absalom regarded all of Absalom's advice. Now what a weird thing to do, right? So you think of the situation. Absalom comes into the city. I don't know about you. If I'm a conquering king, uh, I've got a lot of things to do. But that very afternoon, what does he do? He pitches a tent on the roof of the palace, which is visible across the whole city. And the concubines start coming in and uh, he starts making love to them. What a weird thing to do, right? I mean, you just conquered the palace. The whole city is yours. Is that the first priority that you're going to, uh, to, to, to make? Well, why? Why does Ahitopo give this advice and why does Absalom do it? I mean, surely he has better things to do. Well, as we've seen here, Ahitopo's advice is very highly regarded both by David and Absalom. And what he's doing is a political move because by doing this despicable act, basically you're either on Absalom's side or you're with David, right? There is no middle ground anymore. There is no more chance for reconciliation between David and his son Absalom. They tried that before, remember a couple of chapters ago? They tried to reconcile both Absalom and David so that there would be peace in the kingdom. But after this act by Absalom, there is no more chance for peace between the king and the crown prince. Now, in many ways, what Absalom did and what Ahitopo advised goes against the very heart of obedience to God. Okay, so I, I'm not going to make you flick to Leviticus. So anyway, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's very, very clear. God said it is abhorrent to for a son to have sexual relations with his father's wives. Right? So four times it says in the Old Testament, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. This would dishonor your father. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman must be put to death. Their blood will be on their heads. A man is not to marry a father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now you might sort of say to me, but hey, but the only concubines, not wives, right? But it is the same thing. The message is the same. Absalom here dishonors David in the most disrespectful thing that he could do. And by doing so, he's seeking to strengthen his hand so that people will choose between him and David. The break is permanent. There's a line drawn in the sand. There is no way back. 
Nahitohobol, the very wise man, knows this. And verse 22 actually ends with just how wise he is. That even David and even Absalom regarded his advice like God speaking. So he knows what he's doing. But in the very end, even through Absalom's wickedness, even through Ahitopo's wisdom, God was fulfilling his plan. Because remember back in chapter 12, God had said very clearly that out of your very own household, before your very eyes, one who is close to you will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, God is always true to his word. And he is true to his judgment on David for sleeping with Bathsheba. What he did in private Bathsheba, Absalom did in public with his concubines. And in every way, we see in chapter 16, the greed of Ziba, the cursing of Shemai, the treachery of Ahitopol, the wickedness of Absalom is actually all part of God's plan to bring judgment on David, to bring him low. And I think that in the midst of revealing God's character of judgment, we still see that David is able to have faith in the judging God. Someone was telling me in our congregation that uh, over Christmas they visited another church. And in the sermon uh, where the other church was, the pastor was preaching a Christmas sermon. And the pastor said that God does not judge people. God does not want to judge people. Instead, God blesses people. But that's not what 2 Samuel chapter 16 says. The character of God is a judging God. And you can't run away from God being a judging God. God certainly judged David for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And God will certainly judge mankind on the last day. Uh, in a sense, uh, there's a lot of fake news in chapter 16, right? But it's fake news to say that God doesn't judge because God judges. Certainly He judges. But as Christians, the final word will not be judgment, but will be grace and forgiveness. Just as God forgave David in the past. And the same way we can share with David in having faith in a judging God. Because for us, we know that though we may face judgment, we will come out of judgment because of God's forgiveness and grace. And I think that that's why in the midst of chapter 16, there's this small interlude where in verse 15 to verse 19, we, we suddenly hear of Hushai again. So, you know, I mean, Hushai was just the last chapter. Hushai was David's friend. And David had prayed to God, God, please frustrate the wisdom of Ahitopo. And God sent him Hushai. And here we see Hushai again. And in this very short section, we see that actually Hushai is the right man to frustrate the wisdom of Ahitopo. Because he himself has cunning and wisdom. See, look with me what it says in verse 15 to 19, and we just see how cunning Hushai is and how God will use him to frustrate Ahitopol and in the end restore David to his covenant. So, Hushai comes back to the capital 
And Absalom says to Hushai in verse 17, So this is the love you show your friend. If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Well, we know he did, right? But he came back. Hushai said to Abraham, oh, so Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, by all the men of Israel, his I will be, I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I serve the, your father, so I will serve you. And don't forget in verse 16, Hushai goes to Absalom and says, Long live the king, long live the king. Now Hushai is the expert in uh, double speak, right? Because in every way, Hushai never says who he's really serving. Long live the king. Is it King David or King Absalom? I will serve the son just as I have served the father. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Because as he serves King David, he promised King David to come back to serve Absalom. Whom shall I serve? I will serve the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, by all the men of Israel. Well, wasn't that King David? King David was the one chosen by God and by these people and all of Israel. So here we see in this very short section in the midst of all the hardship and judgment on David, God's grace. Because in Hushai, we have one who is very good with words and we know that this is the one that God will use to frustrate Ahitopo's wisdom. And I think that as we look at this passage, we see that the judgment on David does not end with final judgment, but instead with grace. Now, in conclusion, as we reflect on this passage, it's actually quite a very complex passage with a lot of details. But I think it shows us what God is really like, and it shows us what real faith is like. See, God is a God not just of love, but He is a God who judges sin. I mean, even though David is His chosen, David is the man after his own heart, He will judge him for his sin, for his murder of Uriah, for his adultery of Bathsheba. It will not do for us to have a make-believe God. You know, in my wallet, I have a picture of my wife. Hey, no, my picture fell out. Oh, that's very embarrassing. I must put another picture in there. Okay? But, but imagine, imagine, uh, if my, my wife's picture was still here. Alright? Imagine if, 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 if I had a picture of a movie actress. And I said, oh, that's actually Cheryl, my wife. And then you say, no, that's not, that's, I don't know, somebody else, right? Emma Stone or somebody else, right? And I said, no, it's not. That's how I imagine my wife to be. Then you say, well, Andrew's got a real problem, right? Okay? But that's the way that we look at God, isn't it? So many people look at God with a make-believe picture, with a picture of unreality. And they think, well, God is just a God of love. He will love and love and love and there is no judgment in God. But how wrong that is. Because this is the reality of God. This is who God really is. This is His character. He is a God of judgment. And we worship a God of judgment. And we have faith in a God of judgment. But we are able to have that sort of faith because we know that for us who believe in Jesus Christ, judgment is not the final word. God will be a God of grace to us. That is the final word. So 1 Peter chapter 4, which is up here, it says a very interesting thing, and it's, it's, it's quite complicated, but we've preached through this book before, and 
it actually says that judgment comes on the family of God, us, but it doesn't end with judgment, it ends with salvation, right? So if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name or that name. For if it, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome? What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And I think that this passage actually says the same thing that David recognized: that yes, judgment. All men face judgment. All women will face judgment. And even in this life, we may face judgment. But because we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that judgment will turn to salvation. So in that way, even as we believe in a judging God, we have faith and we have hope because we know that that judgment is not the final word. What is the final word is grace and blessing and salvation. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, Help us to see the reality of who you really are. That you are a judging God who punishes those who sin against you, who rebel against you, who have not kept your words. But at the same time, we thank you so much for you have sent your very own son, God himself in Jesus Christ, to come to die on the cross for us so that even though we pass through judgment, we will come through unscathed because Jesus pays for our sin and the final word will not be judgment, but instead salvation. That right now Jesus is at your right hand as our advocate, speaking up and defending us so that we will not end up in eternal hell, but rather be saved. And we pray that as a result, we will be able to have faith in you, a judging God. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.